0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace, so that you may learn God's Word in order to live God's way. When you can say that all you want is Jesus, you magnify him and you glorify him big time. Because you're saying that he's the treasure of your life and that it doesn't matter what this world dangles in front of you that's sparkly and shining. You're saying the thing that brings me the most joy is Jesus Christ. And when you can say that, you glorify him big time. And that's what life is about, finding our joy in Jesus as our treasure and then God gets glory. Um, as we start, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're back in the book of Philippians. While you're turning there, just let me say thank you for all of your prayers uh, for myself and for Heather and for the McBurnies as well. Um, God's grace was with both families um, as Uh, Babies were being born. So thank you for your prayers. Um, Ask you also to be in prayer this coming weekend. The elders and staff have an elder retreat. We're going to be talking and thinking and praying about the future of grace. So we ask you to be praying for us Friday night and Saturday. Now, before we get into God's word, it would be appropriate for us to pray uh, for him to open our eyes to see wonderful things out of his word. So let's do that now. Father, thank you so much. We are living for the truth. We're living for Jesus, and we thank you, Father, that out of your great love you sent him into this world to rescue us and to redeem us and to remedy our fallen sinful condition To for those here who have trusted in his work to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. We thank you for that, for his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, and As King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God, we're living for that. We're living for the gospel. Now we ask you by your spirit, Father, would you come and open our eyes to see wonderful truths, to see gospel truths here in your word today, God, that we would be transformed as we live together in community. And then may you take great delight and pleasure and may you get glory as our lives are transformed by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, both Greg and James preached on community. Last Sunday morning, uh, Greg preached specifically about how to be involved in community in small groups here at Grace. And then if you came on Sunday night, Pastor James preached on how not to be a zombie at church. And he really explained how the famous passage of Romans twelve one to 2, how we are living sacrifices on the altar, how not to... You know, creep off of the altar, but to stay there. And then he looked at the rest of Romans and tied in how all of that is about relationships. And now today we're going to talk about living together in gospel community. So I have a hunch that Jesus wants to get a point across the Grace Baptist Church, and it's that we are meant to live in community with other Christians. So the big idea today out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 is this Your walk with God is a community. Project. Your walk with God is a community project and God has called you to intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, Scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. So here's what I mean when I say all that. God uses other people in community, other Christians in the church body to help us remember our identity in Christ and to help us live out of that identity instead of living out of our fallen identity, which is our default mode. It's what we go to. So Paul is getting involved here in the life of the Philippian church, and he's being very intrusive here. He's involved in their lives because he knows that being a disciple of Jesus Christ means being involved in a church community. Now, when I say intrusive, some of you checked out and you're like, no way, I don't want people intruding in my life. When I say intentionally intrusive, these kind of relationships, I do not mean that somebody's going to knock at your door at 2 a.m. and say, hey, I heard you were struggling with worry and doubt. That people aren't going to come read your mail. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being intentionally intrusive in such a way that you care for people, that you ask them, how are you doing? And you've got freedom to admit that because, listen, the reality is this. We've already been exposed by the cross. Jesus came because we were messed up. So it doesn't matter what you tell somebody in community because you've already been exposed. There's a gigantic billboard at Calvary saying you are messed up because of sin. And so if you admit anything to anyone and you share your struggles, they shouldn't be surprised because Jesus has already called you out at the cross. But he came to redeem you, and he does that through his work on the cross. And then, part of his rescue plan is to do that in these intentionally intrusive relationships in church community. Paul is reminding the Philippian church here of these wonderful gospel truths that he's going to talk about because he knows as disciples, as Christians, we are prone to forget that we are involved in a bigger story. The bigger story of the Bible. But yet so many of us functionally exist as if life is about us and we're on the throne, don't we? Something goes wrong, car breaks down, you don't have money, you get upset because what? Your world has changed. But Paul's writing to the Philippians to say, you're part of this bigger story. He just told them in verses 1 through 11, that Jesus was on the throne. He was high and lifted up. And now he's telling the Philippians, life isn't about you. You're not on the throne. You're part of a bigger story. And God is at work in you, Philippians. He's working in you. He wants, Paul wants him to live in light of this. He wants him to watch how they live in this world and to remember that the bigger story is moving towards the day of Christ when we will stand before him. Give account of our lives, and he will usher us into his kingdom, which is a kingdom of everlasting and ever-increasing joy. Now, let me show you where I'm getting all of that, okay? Look at verses 12 through 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For... It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is telling the Philippians here that discipleship is all about community. He's highlighting their obedience. But notice he says, therefore. He's linking what he's about to say with what he just said. He says, in light of the fact that Jesus has come and gave up his life and laid his life down and gave up his rights and was a servant and a slave and died in your place on the cross and God highly exalted him, King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee is going to bow before him. In light of that, Paul says, this is what I want you to do. He says, I want you to keep on being obedient. He says, I want you to continue to live these obedient lives that are shaped by the gospel. What Paul is doing here is he's calling them to gospel obedience in gospel community with other believers. He's saying this, you have always obeyed. You're living gospel-centered lives you did when I was with you, but now keep doing it even though I am not there with you. But notice the communal element to this. Paul is involved in their life. Their life is a part of his life. This is church community. And then Paul says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." What does Paul mean? What does he mean when he says, "Work out your salvation?" Paul does not mean work in such a way to get right with God. See, the doctrine of justification is that we have right standing with God because of Jesus' work and not our works. So Paul is not saying work hard and try to be good and maybe you'll be made right with God. He's not saying that at all when he says work out your salvation. Our salvation, our justification, our being made right with God comes about because of what Jesus has done for us and not what we have or haven't done for him. We're made right with God because of Jesus' performance for us and not our performance for Jesus, because quite frankly, our performance is pretty shabby, isn't it? Thank God our relationship with God is not based on the way we live. Because none of us would ever be made right with God. And that's what Paul is writing to the Philippian church about. Because in chapter 3, he's going to address the false teachers who came into Philippi and said, no, Paul's wrong. It's not justification by grace through faith. It's the false teachers were saying, you work hard to be a good person and you're made right with God. And Paul is writing to them to say, that's not what the gospel says. It's about Jesus' work and not yours. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, he's speaking here of sanctification. The life of fighting sin, striving for holiness, obedience, pleasing the Lord, being transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So working out your salvation, sanctification means you take whatever steps are necessary to remove any trace of spiritual sin or disease. It means you hate sin and you fight sin and the way that you do that is through gospel rehearsal you come back again and again to the gospel remembering all that god is for you in his son jesus christ gc burkhauer said this the heart of sanctification is the life which feeds on justification see so you'll live a life of obedience and holiness and sanctification when you feed on the gospel in community with other believers. So Paul is saying, work out your salvation. Keep feeding on uh, justification. Keep reminding yourself that you're made right with God because of Jesus' work and not your works. Keep reminding yourself about the gospel, that Jesus died to bring you to God to transform you. He says, keep feeding on that truth. He's saying, don't focus on your behavior, focus on your Savior. And when you focus on your Savior, then your behavior will begin to change. But notice here, the communal aspect of sanctification. The words here, work out, and your salvation are in the plural, in the Greek here. We are to work out our salvation, our salvation as a church body, together in community. That's Christianity. Christianity is not you and Jesus and your Bible sitting on the beach at five o'clock when the sun's going down and you have the perfect, quote unquote, quiet time. That's not Christianity. That's a part of Christianity. But there's a whole lot of one another's in the Bible that are written, and you can't do those one another's by yourself. Love one another. So many Christians try to live that way, though. Try to do the whole, it's me and Jesus and my Bible, and that's it. You need that, okay? You absolutely need that. That's got to happen. But you have to be involved in a church community. See, your walk with God is a community project. Everyone's involved. Your walk with God is a community project. And he's called you to intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. And God uses other people in church community to help us work out our salvation individually and corporately. People remind us of who we are in Christ when we have a bad day, and when we doubt God's word, and when we struggle with sin. And that's what Paul is doing here with the Philippians. He's saying, keep on obeying, keep working out your salvation together as a church community. Then Paul says that they are to do this working with fear and trembling. What he means is that they are to live with a sense of God's holiness, to have this wholesome dread of breaking his commandments. Paul says it's God who is at work in you. The the triune God who has existed since eternity past, always. God has dwelled in unity and in community. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have, have been together in community forever. And that God, Paul is saying, that lives and dwells in community with one another is inside of every single one of you and is inside you as a church body. Notice the reason in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The triune God is at work inside the church at Philippi. The triune God is at work inside us here at Grace. That's why the Philippians, and that's why we are to work out our salvation together, because God is at work in us. Paul would say this, Philippi, you work out because God is at work in you. Now, how does God work in us individually and collectively? Paul says in verse thirteen, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We know that God's working in us. He started this work in us, Philippians 1 6, that Paul says that um I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to bring up the day of Christ again. So he says, God began this work in you. He's working in you. So he's saying, God is working at the level of your will, causing you to work for his good pleasure. God is working inside of us, corporately, to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. And this brings him pleasure. Did you see that? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So understand this, when you get involved with other believers here, sharing your life and your struggles, and you get honest with people, and you open up and they pray with you, and they share scripture with you, and they disciple you, and they encourage you, and God begins transforming you, then guess what? It brings God pleasure. It brings him joy. It brings him delight to see his people slowly transformed and conformed to the image of his son. And that's why we're pushing small groups. We want your life to be transformed. Because then God gets joy and God gets delight and God gets pleasure. And the last time I checked, life is about God. It's about him getting glory, him getting pleasure in his people. Now, where does all this transformation occur? It occurs right here in community with others. Yes, it occurs on the beach with your Bible, you and Jesus, having your quiet time. But it occurs here and should occur here. We're called the body of Christ, right? Not the body part of Christ. So many People, Christians, functioning as this disembodied liver, kind of flopping around on the sidewalk, not plugged into church anywhere. Oh, they may come and sit in the church every week, but they're not plugged in. They're kind of functioning as this body part that just exists instead of being together in gospel community. One of the best ways for you to get involved in community here is to go to the gym and check out the small groups and just get involved. Listen, I know, the, I know the biggest reason people don't get involved in small groups is because they say, I don't want people knowing my business. Let me tell you, this book right here already told me about all your business. You're messed up. You're a sinner. You, have, you struggle with sin in your life. So don't let that hinder you from joining a church body and you, in, in a community and you open up and say, this is what I'm struggling with. Would you share scripture with me? Would you pray with me? One of the ways you can do that is in a small group, in a Sunday school class or a few people at Starbucks. But just get involved and open up. You've already been exposed by the cross. Now let the gospel do its work to transform you in community with others. Your walk with God is a community project. And it's a community project, and he has called you to intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, Scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. Now, in verses 14 through 18, Paul is going to get very practical on how the Philippians can work out their salvation in community with others. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Man, this verse is so practical that I don't want to highlight it. I want to get a Sharpie marker and kind of cover over those first few words there. Not really. Don't get me wrong. I love God's word. But this verse is so convicting, is it not? Do all things without grumbling. I'm not suggesting you get a sharpie and cover over God's word. I'm just saying that this word is so convicting that when I read it, I'm like, oh, it's reading my mail. Paul's saying, stop complaining. Stop questioning. Even the Greek word here for grumbling sounds like it should be the Greek word for grumbling. It's gongosmon. It's like when the Greeks were sitting around and somebody was complaining and grumbling, like, we need to come up with a word for that. And some guy was like, moan. It's just the perfect word. Now, Paul's saying, stop all the gone goose mode. Now, why? Why does Paul, when he writes to a church body and he says, work out your salvation together, plural, in community, because God's working in you at your will, and he's working in you to work for good, his good pleasure. Why does Paul then immediately start talking about grumbling and complaining? It's because Paul's been around the block. Paul's not some Johnny-come-lately. He knows the Old Testament, and he's been involved in churches before. What was the recurring problem with the children of Israel? Murmuring, complaining, grumbling. In Exodus 15, after Moses delivered, after Yahweh delivered them from the clutches of Pharaoh under the leadership of Moses, they see the ten plagues happen. They cross over the Red Sea on dry ground, and then the Lord wipes out Pharaoh and his armies. What do they do once they see all those magnificent miracles happen? What do they do when they get on the other side of the Red Sea? What happens? They start mumbling and grumbling and complaining. We don't have any water, Moses. Wah, gone goose moon. Do you know how many days they waited before they started mumbling and grumbling? Three days. Three days after seeing all of the plagues and all of the miracles that the Lord did, and then three days later, they're like, wah. Then they start, in Numbers 11, they start grumbling about not having bread and meat. So God says, I'm going to give you manna. But we want meat. We miss the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Wah, gone goose moan. It was better in Egypt. And then God tells them, I'm going to give you meat, all right. I'm going to give you so much quail it's going to start coming out your nostrils. You're going to be stuffed with it. Check it out, book of Numbers. Then in Numbers 14, they rebel and grumble again. We're going to die in the desert. Our little babies won't survive in the land. Let's go back to Egypt. It was so much better there. Wah, gone goose moan. That is why Paul first addresses grumbling and questioning when he tells a church community to work out their salvation. Why? Because churches are prone to grumble and question everything. Can I fish for an amen? Churches are prone to grumble and question and complain about everything. This doesn't mean that you can ask questions. I mean, come tonight to our celebration of grace. Ask questions about some uh, financial things. Do that. Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about mumbling and grumbling and questioning the decisions of the church leadership. Churches often default to grumbling, don't we? When things don't go our way, grumble. Grumble about the elders. Grumble about the pastors. Question the elders' decisions. Grumble about the coffee. Grumble about the parking spaces. Grumble about the color of the carpet. Grumble about the length and topic of sermons. Grumble about the music. We do that a lot, don't we? Not here because the music's good. We grumble about the music. Grumble about the temperature in the room. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Gongoose moan, gone goose moan, gongoose moan. And that's why Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The God who is involved with the people of God in the Old Testament is the same God who's involved with his people in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God lovingly disciplined his people in the Old Testament, and he lovingly disciplines his children today. The book of Hebrews talks about it. That's why Paul says, Work out your salvation corporately with fear and trembling because it's God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is at work in your life. Our church newsletter, Walking in Grace, will delve further into grumbling this week. So make sure that you read it. If you're not on the email list, email the church. It goes out every Thursday. We're going to talk more about grumbling. What we're really going to see is that when we grumble against anybody or about anything, we're really grumbling against the Lord. And that's why Paul says, don't grumble. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because when you grumble and you complain, you're complaining against the sovereign God who orchestrates all of the affairs of every human being's life. So, your walk with God is a community project. Your walk with God is a community project and God has called you to intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. Maybe we need to come up with a code signal here for when people are grumbling. Wouldn't that be nice here when people are grumbling and complaining? Like, you know, when somebody has something on their face, what do we do? We're kind of like, you got something right there. What if we came up with something like that for when people are grumbling and complaining? Maybe we uh, institute the zip the lip of grumbling gone goose moan. And we do that, you know, maybe add a little flair to it and you can put your pinky up and be like, "Mm," you know, cut out the grumbling, zip it. Or maybe we could just go, gone goose moan, grumbling. Maybe we could do that. Or maybe we could just saddle up next to someone and say, hey, brother, I love you. And I love you enough to risk you hating me or thinking I'm self-righteous or holier than thou to tell you that you need to quit grumbling and complaining. And when you grumble and complain, you grumble against the Lord. And he's been so good to us. And if you hear me grumbling, love me enough to tell me to quit. Wouldn't that be great to see that happen here? Sunday morning, throughout the week. We shouldn't be startled if it ever did happen because it's biblical. That's what Paul's doing here with the letter of Philippians. He's saying, hey, quit your grumbling. Quit your complaining. May God give all of us the grace to quit grumbling and murmuring and questioning and complaining. And when he does do that, he gets pleasure. Remember, he works in us collectively for his good It will bring God joy if you zip your lip because you're being transformed and you're being conformed to the image of his son and he loves seeing the image of his son in his people. It'll bring him great joy and great delight. That's the number one reason to quit. Another reason to quit grumbling is because the world is watching us. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul gives the purpose there. See the purpose clause, that. The purpose, why we are not to complain and question is because we reflect God's glory to a watching world. You see that connection there? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that, so that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If the church doesn't complain and grumble and backbite and bicker, then we will be blameless and innocent and without blemish in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation. If the church doesn't complain and grumble and backbite and bicker, then we will shine as lights in the world. Notice the connection. Don't grumble, don't complain, so that you'll be blameless, so that you'll be shining as a light and reflect God's glory. Do you see what he's saying? It's nothing worse than Christians who complain. Because we tell people God is sovereign and he's in control of every issue of life, and then we go to work and something happens and rah, 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 we start complaining. And I have to scratch my head and think sometimes the world's thinking, If you really believe that God is sovereign and good, and you've been telling me that for six years now at work, then don't you believe he's sovereign over this situation at work and he's meaning it for your good? So we shine his lights in the world when we quit bickering and murmuring and complaining. The big question is, though, how do we as fallen redeemed sinners Live lives free from grumbling and complaining. How do we live these blameless, innocent lives amidst this crooked generation? How do we live as shining lights? It takes the gospel. Look at verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. The word of life is the gospel message. That Christ died to bring us to God, that he forgives us, and that he transforms us. And it is only as we hold on to the gospel message and rehearse it and preach it to ourselves that we will live gospel-saturated lives in gospel community. And one of the ways you do that is you take the fighter verses that we're memorizing. And you start storing those verses in your head so that when you meet someone at Starbucks and they say, I'm struggling, then you're able to come with God's word and encourage them. The answer to grumbling is the gospel. You rehearse the gospel. You hold fast to the word of life. You look to Jesus and you focus on what he has done for you and not what you have or haven't done for him. That's how you kill grumbling and complaining within a church community, by gospel rehearsal. So that when someone is tempted to grumble or complain, or they do grumble and complain, you saddle up next to them and you challenge them and you share scripture with them and you remind them of how good God has been in redeeming them and forgiving them. Because that's what the Israelites needed to hear. Somebody needed to say, hey, three days ago we were redeemed from slavery. We've been set free to worship Yahweh. And whenever we grumble and complain, we need somebody to come alongside of us and say, look, you've been redeemed Your biggest problem is not the temperature of the sanctuary at church. Your biggest problem is not the color of the carpet. Your biggest problem is not the music. Your biggest problem is not the elders. Your biggest problem was the fact that you were born a sinner. You were separated from God under his wrath. You deserve judgment in hell forever and yet in his grace and mercy he opened your eyes to the beauty of the gospel through repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love and who you have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So what are you grumbling and complaining about? Your biggest problem, Christian, has already been solved. Now you are adopted into the family of God. Nothing left to worry about. Nothing left to complain about. Nothing left to grumble about. We've been made right with a holy God, spared from his eternal wrath in hell. It doesn't get any better than that except seeing him on that final day and being with him forever. so it does get a little bit better, a lot better actually, but being with him, we just uh, just beginning to taste the glories of the gospel now. That's gospel rehearsal preaching the gospel to yourself, preaching it to others here in community, holding fast to the word of life here in community, coming alongside people and say, not only has God forgiven you, brother, but he wants to transform you right now. He wants to rescue you from yourself and redeem you and this situation. So hear his word and follow him. So your walk with God is a community project. It's not you and Jesus and your Bible on the beach. Or at your kitchen table with your cup of coffee. You need that. You got to do that. But that's not Christianity. That's just a part of it. Christianity is being a part of the body of Christ. Being involved in intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, Scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. Redemptive. That God comes and changes us in the midst of our situation. See, the gospel keeps us in this life helps us live together as a church community in this world, but it also prepares us for the next life. Notice the communal element, the community element of the gospel as it relates to the day of Christ, that final day. Look at verses 16 to 18. Holding fast to the word of life so that, and there's the purpose clause again, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, insert in the gospel, your faith in Christ, your faith in the gospel, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There's the purpose clause. So that all these things, Paul says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In vain. Paul wants the Philippian believers to keep rehearsing the gospel, to keep holding fast to the word of life, so that his ministry among them would not be in vain. He says, I don't want to run like an athlete in ministry in vain. I don't want to work hard in labor, in prayer for you, in discipleship for you, and get there, and it's all in vain. You see, if the Philippians abandoned the gospel message, then Paul's work would be in vain. We're going to talk about them in chapter 3, the false teachers that are coming in, the Judaizers who are saying, you're made right with God by the way you live, by your works. And Paul is counteracting that in the book of Philippians. He's saying, no, it's about Jesus and what he has done, his perfect life. It's him taking your sin, him giving you his righteousness that makes you right with God. And Paul says, if you abandon that message, you don't keep holding fast to the word of life. He says, then my ministry will be in vain. Because you'll be, be believing a gospel which is not a gospel. The good news is the gospel is that you can't make yourself right with God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus did it for you. And Paul says, if you abandon that, then my ministry will have been in vain. Paul wants them to live with... That day in view, though, the day of Christ, their day-to-day living now through gospel rehearsal will protect them and keep them for that final day when they will stand before the Lord and they will all give account for their lives. And that day-to-day living now where they're tempted to grumble will be changed as they rehearse the gospel. If the Philippians kept their grip on the gospel as a church community, then Paul says, my life will be like a drink offering. The drink offering was poured out on, on, the, main, on the main sacrifice. The main sacrifice was a significant part. And Paul's saying, what matters is you guys. And he says, I want my life to be such, uh, lived in such a way that my life is just a drink offering. That you guys are holding fast to Jesus and to the gospel. And that if I get beheaded in this prison, if I die a martyr's death, my life is poured out as a drink offering on the main offering of your life, which is what? He says, it is a sacrificial offering of your faith. What is their faith in? Their faith is in the gospel message. Their faith is in Jesus. Remember in Philippians 1.27, he said, you're striving side by side for faith in the gospel. And he says, when you do that, and by God's grace, you make it to that final day. He says, my life is just gonna be like a drink offering poured out on top of your sacrifice. And then Paul says, if that happens, I'll rejoice big time. Look at verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If the Philippians stick with the gospel, they hold fast to the word of life, they hold fast to God's word, and they keep rehearsing it and keep preaching it to one another in community, and then Paul lays his life down for them in ministry, then it produces joy in everyone This is joy unleashed in gospel community. When we hold on to the gospel, we live it out and we share it with one another and we rehearse it and we remember it. It brings joy now because you have those days where you wake up and you don't feel like you can come into God's presence because of your crabby attitude that you've had all week and your truckload of sin. You ever have those mornings where you don't feel like you can come into his presence that you think he's waiting to, to kill you? He doesn't want you. You ever have those days? I do. What do you do in those days? You rehearse the gospel and you say, Jesus has made me right with God. Jesus has given me his righteousness. I've been imputed with his righteousness. I'm justified in God's eyes so I can come into your presence, Father, as your adopted child and say, forgive me and thank you for Jesus that he never sinned one time. That's so mind boggling to me. Because I find myself in situations day after day where I repeatedly sin. And yet, you know, look at Jesus, and He's perfect. So, Paul's saying, Philippi, hold on to the gospel, keep looking at Jesus, keep talking about His work, His finished work for you, and it will produce joy in you. Because when these false teachers creep in and tell you you have to work hard to get God's favor, you're not going to have any joy because you can't get God's favor through your own works. It's frustrating. He's saying, the the good news of the gospel is that you are made right with with God because of Jesus' work for you when you repent and believe. And when you hold to that, it brings joy. Joy is unleashed, Paul says, in my life, in your life, and joy would be unleashed here when we stick with the gospel. And it's supposed to happen in community. See, your walk with God is a community project. You're called to these intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, Scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. And for you, it involves me and the other pastors here and the elders and the deacons and the people sitting next to you and the people sitting in front of you and the people sitting behind you. We're all in this together. That's the bigger story that we tend to forget is that life is about Jesus and being a part of His body and living for his glory. If you could really pull back from these verses and get a higher view, you see that this passage is really about God's glory. It's about living as a church community so that God is glorified. Paul says, God is working in us for his good pleasure, for his joy, his delight, his glory. Paul says, when we are obedient children, what does any parent do when their child is obedient? What does it produce in you? Joy. Joy and delight, even though it doesn't happen that often, right? But when it does, there's joy. And Paul says, when you live obedient lives shaped by the gospel, it produces joy in God and pleasure, and he gets glory. And then Paul says, when you shine as lights, reflecting God's glory to the world, He goes on display and he gets glory and joy and delight and pleasure. And Paul says, when you hold on to the word of the life, the gospel, and when you focus on Jesus and you talk about Jesus and he's always in the spotlight, then God gets joy and pleasure and delight and glory. And Paul says, when we arrive at the day of Christ, because God completed the work in us, who gets the glory that day? We certainly don't. He does. And he gets joy and pleasure and joy and delight And when we have joy unleashed now, because Jesus is our treasure, because all that he has done for us to bring us to God and to transform us, when we have that joy now, and we live like he's all we want, he gets glory big time. He gets joy, he gets delight, he gets pleasure. See, that's what this passage is really about. It's about God getting pleasure, God getting joy, God getting delight, and God being glorified through a church community. And it is this God who is working in us, Grace Baptist, to change us and to transform us for his good pleasure. I have a feeling that he takes great joy in churches that live in community together and work out their salvation with fear and trembling. May we be one of his churches that brings him joy. We're about to sing a song that talks about being transformed from the inside out. That's what we want. So as you sing this song, sing it for God's glory, but sing it for you personally to be transformed, but sing it for us as a church body to be transformed for God's glory from the inside out by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful time of Exultation and delighting in and over your word. What an incredible privilege it is for me, Father, to stand before your people and under your word. I love that you've called me to open your word up to your people, God. I love your word and I love you, God. We love you. Would you help us, God, to be a church community that's not afraid to say, I am struggling. With fear, doubt, and worry, and lust, and pride, arrogance, whatever it is, God. Would you help us to sit at the cross and say, I'm exposed. And then may your redemption come to us through your people, through the gospel message. And may you transform us, God. Make us a people who walk in community so that your good pleasure happens. So that you get joy and you get glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.